Let's turn then for a last time to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And as we read this chapter, I don't think we could have any doubt about the seriousness of idolatry because we witnessed the severity of the consequences of idolatry. I'll say that again. I don't think we can have any doubt about the seriousness of idolatry because we witness the severity of the consequences of idolatry. As we've read this chapter over the last three weeks, we notice, don't we, the severity of God's righteous anger. Verses 9 and 10, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. We see the severity of Moses' reaction in verse 19, where coming down with Joshua from the mountain, Joshua says, well, it sounds like the noise of war. And uh, Moses says, no, it's not that. It's not the noise of war. It's the noise of what happens in idolatry, singing, dancing, all those different things. This is not for God. And in verse 19, Moses' anger becomes hot and he cast the tables of stone out of his hands and he smashed them at the foot of the mountain. We see the severity of the fact that in verse 28, Moses calls whoever is on the Lord's side to come to him and some of the tribe of Levi come and he arms them with swords and they go through the camp, through all these thousands of people and find the ringleaders who persuaded Aaron in the first place to put up this idol and they are put to death. 3,000 men lost their lives because of idolatry. And then we see the seriousness right at the end of the chapter in verse 35. It doesn't just stop at the end of this chapter. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. And in fact, if you just read on into the next chapter at home, you'll see that that actually spills over into the next chapter also. So we have no doubt about the seriousness of idolatry. And we've defined what idolatry is. It's not just putting up sort of images and golden calves. It is those things which when we look within, and when the searchlight of God's word comes into our hearts and the Holy Spirit illuminates our, our hearts and lives, we see those things that take the place of God, that to deflect and distract us from God so that we don't worship him alone. We may say we're worshippers of him, but there are other things that come in, divert our attention, become the things that we look at and we pay attention to and we spend our time on instead of God. Now, before we go on and develop what we're saying this morning, we have to have a note of caution, a note of perspective, if you like. Three things to say to give us a perspective as we read this chapter. Three things to remember. Number one, we remember where in Scripture this is all set. 
We remember where it is. It's in Exodus. It's in Exodus 32. But where's that? It's in the Old Testament. It's under the Old Covenant, isn't it? Now, we are people of the New Covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, fulfilled all the Old Testament laws, come and died upon the cross to free us from sin and uh, to free us from these things. But we don't simply put a line through the Old Testament and say, well, that doesn't apply anymore. Because we're told, aren't we, by Paul in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, when he's writing to Timothy as a young pastor, he says to him, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to us. All scripture. Of course, he was referring very much to the Old Testament because Paul's actually writing scripture in writing that letter. All scripture. So this is profitable. It's profitable. We don't just pass it over and say, well, it's just history. It's profitable. The second thing to remember is what the events here are. What are the events here? They are history. They are reality. It's not a made-up story. This is reality. The graves, the bones of these men who died that day are there out in the wilderness of Sinai. Long gone, of course, and become dust, but real people. Real events. But what are they for us? They are spiritual example. So they are physical reality, but spiritual example. They are illustrations, not instructions. See what I mean? If you look at verse 27, we don't take verse 27 and say this, well, I've noticed there's some idolatry in the church. Thus says the Lord, let every man put his sword on his side and go out from entrance to entrance. Let every man kill his brother. We don't have, we don't have that bloodshed. Of course we don't. But the example is very vivid, isn't it? It's very serious what happens here. There are illustrations rather than instructions. Then the third thing we need to remember is this, that these examples are here to do something for us. Two things, Romans 15 verse 4, go right back to when we began, and in, in, the, in the sort of introductory notes, right back, long time ago now, last year, we made this point from Romans 15 verse 4, that they're for our learning, for our learning, so we sit down as Christians and we say, Lord, what am I to learn from this? There's something for me to learn from this. We'll hear it this evening. Gideon died many years ago. The events of Gideon's life in the book of Judges are long past and gone, but they're there for us to learn from. And very specifically, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, we are told that these events are for our admonition our admonition. And we've said, haven't we, on a number of occasions, that means to put us in mind of. So they're here as an example, vivid, real, historical example, but they're here to put you and me in a mind, in a frame of mind that says, I've got to do something about this in my life. Because if, if, if this idolatry uh, issue is real in my life, and we've discovered it is, 
Because as we said last week, an idol is not just of the hand. It's of the mind. It's things which you can't see. Nobody else can see you're an idolater, but God can. Therefore, our admonition to put us in mind. So here are some things this morning to put us in mind of what we should do, what we should do concerning this matter of idolatry. Now, here's the first thing. We must do all we can to avoid it. Avoid it. The word there, a word, we're going to have some words. Avoid, avoid. We must avoid it. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, um, Paul says to the Corinthians that these things, that there, there are examples, they were written for our learning, that we should not, that we should not be idolaters like they were. So he said that if you're a Christian and you're reading through Exodus, if you're hearing a message through Exodus 32, what it's doing, first of all, is saying to me, saying to you, don't go here. Don't go down this road. Avoid it. Do all you can. You may say, well, I left my idolatry behind when I became a Christian. The Lord freed me from so many things. I used to worship myself and stuff and football and, uh, and, and all sorts of things. I, I used to worship those things, but now God is first in my life. Ah, but we've seen, haven't we, how idolatry can come back so easily. And uh, what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is, do all you can to avoid it, to avoid it. He said, these things are written so that you should not go the same way as these people went, as Aaron went all those years ago. You know the Apostle John? The Apostle John, he's very different to Paul. Paul, systematic, theological, building his argument, showing us in those passages what these examples are for and for our admonition and so on. Now, John is very different. John is very fatherly very tender in his writing. He was the apostle of love. But it's really interesting that when John writes his epistles, and he writes so beautifully, doesn't he, to Christians, and he says, my little children, my little children, young ones, he says. Well, what does he say right at the end when he's written his first letter? 1 John 5, 21 the very last words of John's first letter, a letter that went round the Christians in the churches in those days. Now, we often think about a letter, don't we? And the first thing that someone says, that's important. But what's the last thing he says? Because the last thing's important, isn't it? You, you, you suck on the end of your pen, as it were, and you think, well, how shall I round this off? How shall I round this letter off? You sit there with your fingers on the keyboard and think, before I put my name at the end here, how shall I round this off? What does he do? He says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. John saw that idolatry isn't just a golden calf in the wilderness. 
idolatry is something which troubles Christians. And he says, keep yourselves. And that, that word is a word which you would use perhaps in a military sense. Stand guard. Keep watch. Sometimes when I was working late at night in the office, uh, and I would be the only person, this big office in the middle of Birmingham, uh, I'd be made to jump sometimes because somebody would come in. Who was it? It was the security guard. Oh, I'm just checking. I'm just checking. I saw the light on. We need to send the security guard around our lives, don't we? We need to review our lives. We need to review our hearts. We need to send the security guard around to say this. What's happening here? Why is the light on? What's going on here? What are you watching? What are you reading? Where are you going? Who's this you with? No other gods before me. Joel Beakey has a commentary on 1 John. It's really helpful. He says this, we keep ourselves from idols by abiding in a right relationship with God, which entails living through the means of grace in the shadow of Calvary. So that when idolatry offers its attractions, we will be able to see them for what they truly are. Only the cross helps us guard our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our affections, our energy, so that we say, like Joseph said, how can I do this? How can I do this? It's interesting, isn't it? That the light that he says we need to shine around in our, in our hearts, in the dark recesses of our minds, is that of the cross to remind ourselves what Jesus did, how precious he is, how wonderful is our salvation. And say to ourselves when we see things coming in and deflecting our attention from him and taking up lots of time, they can be silly, ridiculous things, they can be legitimate things. But the cross is the comparison point. They're worthless, really, compared to him. Idolatry has got a lot of doubtful characters that hangs around with him. They're part of the gang. Idleness. He's a great mate of idolatry. Isolation, he's a friend too. Not meeting with God's people, keeping yourself to yourself, hiding away, doing stuff no one can see. That's why fellowship and friendship is so important. A lack of focus in our lives. So when we shine the light of the cross in our hearts and minds, it says to us, Jesus came for this purpose. What's the purpose of my life? Has the purpose of my life gone off track? Self-serving. 
He's another friend of idolatry. Doing it all for me, what pleases me, me becomes a great idol, doesn't it? You see, when we've referred to it a number of times, there's references to idolatry in the New Testament. One of them is in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verses 9 and 10. You can either just flick your Bible there or just listen, because this is very important. It's not just an incidental comment. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says this. He says, For they themselves declare unto us what manner of entry we had into you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Paul, what he's saying there is, these Christians in Thessalonica once had idols. He doesn't say what they were, but they were idols in their hearts, in their lives, maybe physical ones, but they turned from them to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's great help, that is, you know, because what it says is this, their lives became a service. And the word is from the word doulos, which is the word for slave in the New Testament Greek. They became those who ceased to serve idols and serve the living God. Their lives were full of things for God. And they waited for the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't just hang around they were doing things which demonstrated that they were sure that Jesus was coming again. So they were concerned for their friends. They were concerned for people because if the Lord Jesus is coming again and people are saying, aren't they, why all these earthquakes? Why all these wars? Why are we seeing so much of this sort of thing? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it? As time goes on, as the end times come, we will see more and more of these things. If Today is a day, it's a day nearer to when Jesus Christ is coming again. So they weren't just waiting, sitting there sort of um, twiddling their thumbs. They were conscious and they became an example church to other churches of how to live for God rather than idols. So the first thing is to avoid it. But what if we don't avoid it? What if idolatry comes in? Wouldn't it, have been, wouldn't it have been great? Just think about it. Exodus 32. Don't do it. Let's just rip it out of the Bible, shall we? Let's just rip it out. And go from Exodus 31 to Exodus 33. And start to learn about the presence of God among his people. And the tabernacle. And all those wonderful things. Let's pretend it never happened. But it did happen. It did happen. You can't pretend that the idols of your heart just aren't there because they are. And we, we, just, we just wonder that we think, how on earth did Aaron do this? How, how, how did he not say, stop, we, we, this is not right? But he didn't. And we don't. We go off track and we get distracted. 
So if we can't avoid it, if we don't avoid it, what must we do? Well, there's some other things. They don't come in a linear form. They come in a package. In this passage, there's a package, if you like, because we do these things together concurrently. It's not like we do one thing, and then it's like we've got a manual, and then we do another thing, and then when we've done that, we do another thing. No, we do all these things. Secondly, therefore, avoid it, the first thing. Second word is mortify. Mortify it. Mortify it. Put it to death. So the picture here is physical, isn't it? So in this chapter, verses 26 to 28, people are put to death. And we, we, we shrink from that and we go, my goodness me, this is, this is terrible. This is terrible. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing that this is a fearful day because idolatry is a fearful thing and it needs dealing with. It has to be put to death. Do you remember the Lord Jesus? Oh, we all say, don't we, how wonderful the Lord Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, he spoke such lovely words. Wouldn't it have been lovely to have sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, talking on the sermon, on the mountain, preaching that sermon, when Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, he's not saying that literally, is he? That would be silly to say that. He is saying it, isn't he, in metaphoric terms. If there's an idol there, whatever it is, get rid of it. If that website keeps coming up and you think, I'm not going to look at it again, and you do, You've got to mortify it. You've got to get rid of it. Those things you think about, those thoughts that keep coming in, you've got to put them to death. You've got to rip them out, chop them off. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he, he, he talks there about a whole list of things in Colossians 3 and verse 5. And he says this, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, sexual impurity, uncleanness, that stuff in your mind that's not pure, passion, love for things that's not good, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, mortify these things, put them to death. They are not worthy of the life of a Christian. And we need to do that. We won't go to it now if we haven't got time, but you know in Galatians chapter 5, there's that lovely list, isn't there, of the fruits of the Spirit. And again, it's a lovely part of Scripture, and we love to think of it. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. Oh, if my life was like that. But you read what can come before it. What comes before it is the alternative list. The list of all those serious sins. And you know, our lives are often a mixed bag. And those things which are from that other list need to go. And Paul says, the church in Galatia, Christians there, these things you've crucified. He uses the term crucifixion. That is the most 
dramatic and awful form, isn't it, of putting someone to death. And he says, these sins and idolatry, they need to be crucified, put to death. So William Cooper's hymn, we sang, didn't we? The dearest idol. And some of us love some sins, don't we? Help me to tear it from thy throne. Worship only thee. Avoid, mortify. What's the third thing? Repent. 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 That old-fashioned word. We sort of shy away from it a bit, don't we? Repent, what does it mean? Well, it means really turning around. It means turning around. So, here in this chapter, we see exactly that. Can you see this in verse 29? In verse 29, uh, after this uh, terrible uh, uh, event in verses 27, 28, verse 29, Moses says, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. And consecration is going in a, in a certain way. It's going towards the Lord. But can you see what he says in verse 30? It came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. So there's two directions here. One is going towards the Lord to serve him again, to consecrate their hearts, having dealt with it all. And the other is Moses going to God and bringing that corporate repentance, as it were, and saying to the Lord, please, will you forgive? And as we, as we turn, as we deal with our sin, as we deal with our idolatry, there has to be repentance. It, ca it can't be without that. The Christian life begins, doesn't it, with faith and repentance. They're so joined together, you can't, can't pull them apart. And if we're going to go on in faith in the Christian life and, and go on with God and go on into Exodus 32 and 34 and so on, and we're going to go on and hear about how God comes with his presence amongst the people, it's going to be a life of faith, but it needs to be a life of repentance too. To say, Lord, I am so sorry for this ridiculous idolatry in my life. I want to go on with you. Help me to put to death the things that stop me going. The Thessalonians turned, that's a repentance word, isn't it? They turned from idols to serve the living God. And if idolatry has come into our lives again, we have to turn. That's repentance. We have to turn again. Now, the fourth word is the word remove. Remove. Well, we see that here, don't we? Remove it. Remove the idol. Remove it. Verse 20. Quite dramatic, isn't it? That's what the, that's what the picture is for us. It's dramatic. And Moses comes down from the mountain. He takes the calf, verse 20, which they had made. He burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Now, this doesn't happen in a moment, does it? Well, just think about it. They've made this golden calf. They've erected it there. Everybody can see it. Now Moses comes. He's cast down the tablets of stone with God's commandments on them. He's demonstrated that all of God's commandments have been broken here. 
And he goes up to this idol and he commands some strong men to come with, with I don't know what they come with, great big mallets or something, and they smash the thing to bits. He says, no, that's not small enough. Smash it even more. Smash it even more. Get bowls. Get bowls. Grind it down, right down to powder. It must have taken a long time. This is gold. He ground it down. And then they went round the camp and they took some. Some of the families in the camp, what's this? What's happening? This is the dust of the idol. What have we got to do with it? Put it in the water and drink it. What? That'd be horrible. That'd be horrible. Idolatry is horrible. And God, in his great wisdom and his mercy, he wants us to see how horrible it is. Verse 35 tells us about the consequences. The, the God plagued the people. We don't know quite what that means. We don't quite know what it was. But the people suffered because of the idolatry. They had to drink the dust of this crazy thing. They, they, they knew that God had come to them and he'd really put his finger on it and he'd said to them, this is not good. And you know, sometimes in your life and my life, God has to come and he puts his finger on it. He puts his finger on it. And when we go to bed at night, we're thinking about it. And when we get up in the morning, we're thinking about it. And, and, it, and it troubles us. And sometimes he does that to make us realize the horribleness of idolatry. How we need to get rid of it, remove it, grind it down. Number five, beware. Beware, beware of its return. Beware of its return. Now we said this is history. 1447 BC. That's what the experts think it is. 1447 BC. Or will you take your Bibles, keep your finger there, and will you turn the pages, and turn the pages if you're able to, if you've got your Bible in front of you, and go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings and chapter 12. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 12, you're turning 500 years of history over. It's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, the years go by, don't they? Well, all those pages you've just turned over, if you found it, if you got there to 1 Kings chapter 12, you've turned over about 500 years of history. It tells me here in my study Bible, it's about 931 B.C. And the country in which these people traveled to, to the promised land, been inhabited by them for many years now. They've had great kings. They had David as the king. They had Solomon as the king. But now things are falling apart a little bit. In fact, more than a little bit. And the nation's divided. North and south. And in the south, there's Jerusalem where... The temple is. But in the north, there's a king, and he's Jeroboam. And in 1 Kings 12, verse 25, read this. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, 
Then the heart of this people will be turned back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So in the north in Israel, here is King Jeroboam. There in the south is King Rehoboam, where Jerusalem is. Therefore, verse 28, the King Jeroboam asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? That is just stunning, isn't it? History repeating itself. Oh, we don't want you to go and do what God says. So what shall we do? He took advice. Somebody said to him, we could do what Aaron did all those years ago. But they didn't tell him the consequences. Maybe he would never have done it. Not one calf, but two. Put in significant cities so that people didn't go to where God intended them to go, but worshipped idols. What's the lesson for us? Beware, beware. You know, we can be a Christian in our 60s, and yet still old sins come back from our 20s. And we can't believe it. How did they get there? Oh, all those friends of idolatry, isolation, and uh, independence, and self-serving, and all those things, they all get together and bring the idol back in. Beware. Beware of its return. It's a battle, isn't it? Christian life's a battle. And some of us now are older, and we realize, don't we, what a battle we're in. It keeps coming back. Things keep coming back. We say, oh, God, why is this back again? Beware. But then there's a last thing. We're going to end with this this morning. Depend. Depend. It's a bit dark, isn't it, all this? It's conscience pricking. That's what it is there to do. Let's say that. It's there to do. It's to put us in mind. But, but here in this passage, there are wonderful things to come into our minds. Can you see what happens here in verse 11? Let's go back to Exodus 32 and verse 11. God has said in verse 10 that his wrath is hot against them. He's going to consume them. He, he, he will make of Moses a great nation. He says that at the end of verse 10. So he's going to abandon his people, in other words. But Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from your harm to this people. Moses pleads for the people. 
He prays to God. He comes on their behalf, sinning idolaters who he himself was angry with, but he comes and pleads with God. And he pleads his name and his promises and his purposes and his covenant and his mercy. He pleads with God. He says to God, please, will you not do this? They're your people. What would people of the world say? What would the Egyptians say if you killed them in the wilderness just now because of this? For your great name's sake, please do not do this. Now, all the way through, we've seen, haven't we, that Moses has been the mediator between God and man. So it's Moses who goes up the mountain. Remember that in chapter 19? Kept going up and down the mountain. Poor man in his 80s. He kept going up and down the mountain. He's still going up and down the mountain, isn't he, in this chapter? And he's mediating between God and man. He's the mediator. But he's also here the intercessor. He is going on behalf of sinful man to God. Moses is the man in the middle. And can you see what else he says here in verse 30? Go to verse 30. We put all the bits of the jigsaw together. And it came to pass on the next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. What's he doing? Interceding. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement. The wonderful word which... Tyndale first started to use when he translated the scriptures at one meant at one God and the people are not at one they're a million miles apart here and Moses says if I go up I can come down to you from God as mediator I can go up from you to him as intercessor and maybe I can make you one maybe there'd be atonement at one meant and last week we read Psalm 106, and probably we should have left that to this week. We read it last week. Psalm 106, verse 23 says this. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So we have this amazing picture. We have this amazing picture of God, a holy God. And man, sinful men and women. And yet one in the middle, in the breach. There's a breach, there's a, there's a gap, there's a vast chasm between the two. And here is Moses, and he's mediating between God and man. He's interceding between man and God. But he's not the man, is he? What have we got here? We have got a picture, haven't we? We have got an illustration. We have got an example. We have got something here to put us in mind of who? Of who? Of Jesus. Of Jesus. The mediator of the new covenant between God and man. The intercessor who pleads for his people, for us. The chosen one. 
Moses is noble and wonderful, isn't he? Did you see what he offered to do? He offered to do in verse 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book. He says, look, I so much love this people. Blot me out and save them. That is a wonderful, it's a noble thing to do, isn't it? And he meant it. But he couldn't do it, could he? What would it have done? It wouldn't have changed anything. But when Jesus Christ came, he was the sinless one, the chosen one. Moses was a sinner. He had to plead as a sinner before God. But Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, pleads for us as perfect man and perfect God. He is the mediator. He is the intercessor. He is the atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins. Moses says, Lord, would you turn away your wrath? Jesus hung on the cross and took that wrath. It was poured out upon him. He diverted it away from us as sinners. And he died in our place. He is the atonement. He brings us perfectly together. He is the mediator. He is the intercessor. That's why we sang that first hymn. We sang it a few times recently. Intercessor. Friend of sinners. He's the one who pleads for us. Why it is we sang that hymn? Because after all this, it's looking to Jesus so that we might worship him alone. Alone. No idols. Him alone. So the last thing really, I suppose, is the greatest thing. Is to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. When all's said and done, all the other things we want to do, mortify and avoid and beware and all those things. It's keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus. The people watch Moses go up the mountain. Will it work? If he goes, we don't see him again. Are we done for? The picture stands, doesn't it? And Moses came down the mountain. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the picture. He came down from the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And he is the perfect atonement, mediator and intercessor. Look to him in all this. And then go on. Because the journey goes on. Thank God we're going to come back next week and we're going to go on on the journey and we can put these things behind us. Maybe these three messages are the changing point, the turning point for you to come to be saved or to be restored, to go on with God. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the wonderful way in which the Old Testament speaks to us in its glorious pictures, sometimes astounding, severe pictures 
Yet the wonderful truth of the New Testament in the Lord Jesus is illustrated so clearly for us. We thank you for it. Please seal these things up to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.